Let's pray for the children. Father, we lift up these children to you, Lord God. They're the apple of your eye, Lord. And God, we ask you to watch over them, Lord, and breathe faith into them, Father God. Spare them, Father God, the aches and the pains that many of us had to go through at a young age, God. We're asking for a miracle on their little hearts, Father God, that a revival would take place within the children's hearts, Father God. God, lead them to understand their need for Christ, God. And Father, fill them at an early age with your spirit, Father God. We pray, Father God, that their names are already written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Father God. We actually bless Dora. We actually bless Alma today, Father God, as they watch over the kids and they shepherd the children's hearts, Father God. I pray, Father God, that you breathe upon the text they read, God, and teach on, and that you apply it to their little lives and their little hearts, Father God. Lord, do a miracle of grace in the children's lives, Father. And God, we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Always keep the children in prayer. Please, always keep the children and their parents in prayer. Uh, Psalm 51, I'll be closing today. After five weeks on this psalm, I will read the whole psalm again, then start off where I left last week. As soon as I find it, I will begin. Psalm 51, a psalm of David. Listen to a man who cannot take his guilt and his shame anymore. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have break and rejoice. Blot out. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry, gang. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltlessness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and hold burnt offerings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the word that's before us, Father God. We ask you, Lord God, to open up our heart, open up our minds to understand 
David's predicament, the depth of sorrow and self-loathing because of his sin with Bathsheba as he had adultery with her and murdered her husband, Father God. And now he seeks your favorable presence once again, Father God, because we know that sin separates God. And so, Father God, open up our eyes, Father God, and help us to apply these truths to our own lives, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. I made it up to verse 8 last week. I'm going to start in verse 7. I'll just uh, go over a couple of things to review before I move on. For most people... You probably know what has taken place. We know that King David, a man who was supposed to be out to war, stayed home one day, and the next thing he found out that he was having an adulterous affair. He ended up trying to cover up his adulterous affair with a crime. That didn't work. He tried to cover up again with another crime. And for about one year, David thought no one knew. For one year, David thought he was getting away with something. But as we read in Psalm 32, his conscience was tormenting him for one full year. God had given him time to come to his senses. But he got further and further away from God. He was a shell of a man. He was a broken down man from the inside out. He was overwhelmed with guilt and with shame. Until God had mercy on him. And God sent the prophet to confront him. Praise God for confrontation. Amen. Praise God when he comes and he confronts our life. Because we can sit in misery for centuries if we live that long. If we aren't confronted by God. And we know what happened. David received the rebuke. It's all open now. What David thought he had done in secret, basically everybody knows. And now he's crying out. He's coming to his senses. The smoke has settled. The dust has cleared. He's a man restored to his right mind. And he just cannot comprehend the depth of transgression he did against God. And that's what happens. There is a sort of sobering upstage when you fall into such a transgression of what he did. Adultery, and I call it rape, and with murder on his hands. He has blood on his hands. This is the king of Israel, and he's making sport with his own sheep. I don't think any of us here, no matter what we've shared in, in our own transgressions in our life, could ever come to the understanding what David felt. David was the leader. He's not just another man on earth. He was God's chosen, anointed leader to lead God's people. And he was delinquent in his duty after many years of doing right. He was a righteous king. And this fall into sin is, is just, it's incomprehensible to me anyway. I just can't comprehend it. When I read this in the Old Testament, as I go through it, it always gets me. I, I, I almost want to, it's like a bad car accident. You know, you want to look, but you don't want to look. And that's how it is when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 and onwards. David's life falls apart. And it's, it's, it's sad to see this champion, this hero of the faith, come to such a climactic end. God still used him, and he still fulfilled his ministry. But moving forward in 2 Samuel, the man fell apart. 
His family life fell apart. Uh, there was uh, just espionage everywhere, conspiracies, his family was an uprising, it was a coup against him. It just went from bad to worse. And so, but he comes to his senses now and he's, he's realizing the depth of his sin. And he writes this psalm, we don't know when it was composed, but most likely it was composed soon after Nathan confronted him, and he had time to reflect on it, and now he's coming to his senses, and now he's crying out to God, because he knows at this point, keeping silent is the worst thing. He's going to God. He's pouring out his heart. And so when we read these 19 verses, remember something. He didn't go through line for line in his emotions. All 19 verses were taking place in him all at one time. He's crying out for a clean heart. He's crying out to be forgiven. He's crying out to be a new man. He's crying out to have a steadfast spirit. He's crying out to be washed. His conscience is tormenting him. A conflict of conscience has tormented this man. And now he's finally gone back to God and said, God, wash me thoroughly. And you can rest assured he was. The first seven verses dealt with David's crying out for God to extend mercy to him, to remove the guilt, to blot out his transgressions. And what that means is that the blotting out was a way of saying, God, every time I think of what I've done, it it paralyzes me with guilt. I, I can't move. I can't function as a king. I can't function as a husband. I can't function as a father. I can't function at all because every time I think of what I did, I cannot move. I can't bear to think about it anymore. And if anybody has ever gone through something like that in their life, they know that some things are really regrettable. And every time you think about it, you're like, how in the world did I do that? I know I have several things that for years, every time I thought about it, I just head my said, oh, God. You know, and then one day, guess what? You can have the thought, but it doesn't consume you anymore because God washed you thoroughly. But David's not there yet. He knows he's forgiven, but his conscience is not washed thoroughly. Every time he would think, and that's why verse 14 has this, Interesting verse that says, wash me of my blood guiltlessness, God, guiltiness. Because every time he thought that he killed his best friend, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was David's armor bearer. He was David's mighty warrior. He was David's bodyguard. And he killed him to cover up his crime. Surely you would think God would give David a pass and not put this in the Bible for the whole world to read for you know, 3,500 years. But David, does, I mean, God doesn't hide sins. He covers them and washes them, but he'll put your name in the book. David's in there for a reason. We'll get to that at the end of the psalm. But now he moves in verse 8. He's moving in a different direction. I'm going to start reading verse 7. But he starts to move in a different direction. He starts to say the same thing in a positive way. He's not asking to be washed as much as he's asking to be renewed. He wants to have joy again. He wants to get back to that favorable place with God that he knew as a child, that he knew as a young man, that he knew as a young king, that he knew all the way up into his, up into his early 50s when this transgression happened. 
So as we move forward now, he's starting to listen to David. He's moving past the guilt. It's still there, but now he wants restoration. Remorse leads to restoration. So let's follow now. We'll read verse 7 and verse 8. And purge me with hyssop. I'm sorry. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This section opens up with a familiar biblical metaphor for spiritual cleansing. That's basically the first seven verses. He needs a cleanse. He needs the touch of God. He needs his conscience wiped clean. He needs a, a fresh thought with God. And he goes here in verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And I ended this last week on this verse. But I will pick it up on this verse now. Because what David is saying here is like, God, I, I can't even comprehend that there was a time when I was in your presence. When I went to the temple and at the festivals. And I would wake up in the early morning sacrifice. In the late night sacrifice. I would think of you. And I I was so overwhelmed by the joyful presence, God, that I was in a right relationship with you. My vertical relationship, you was tight. It was right on. You were my everything, God. You were my rock. You were my fortress. You are my salvation, God. I had such a joy, a deep sense of personal joy, God. And God, it is totally vanished. I mean, so far gone that David don't even know what it's like anymore. He know he had it. But it's not up and operating in his life world. There's no religious joy. David needs the presence of God again in his life. I want to ask Christians today. As you worship in song today, did you have a sense of God's favorable presence in your heart? I hope you did. David didn't anymore. His salvation was not in jeopardy, but his daily relationship with God was. And that can happen to any one of us. Jesus says you're washed, you're cleansed, but your feet are dirty. You need to be cleansed on a daily basis. For me to stay tight with God and to enjoy God, I've got to make sure I'm dealing with the sin in my heart and the sin in my life. I've got to make sure I repent it quickly. But to be saved, that's a one-time thing. But to maintain and manage my relationship with God, you just, we, we're not cavalier attitude, living like we can do whatever we want and have the joy of God. No. If you are here and you think you can get away with something, guess what? You're going to dry up like a flower in the scorching sun. That's what happened to David. He has to get right with God. He needs God's presence again. He's missing God's presence. He does not feel like a secure child anymore. He feels like a very vulnerable human being. With no spiritual life in him whatsoever. And to have that his conscience needs to be right with God. The spiritual fruit of unsolicited joy which comes to a faithful believer when you're right with God and you're living right with God and you're doing right with God and you're confessing sin and you're doing your best to live for God your conscience is free and God can just imbue upon us his joy and his presence it's just happy being a Christian you don't need anything happening you just, there's this great content in your life the journey's over you're not looking for something 
David doesn't have it. Joy is the fruit of redemption. But God can refuse it to anyone he wants to when he's dealing with them. And David doesn't have it. God's dealing with David. He's forgiven. But David's crying out. He's pleading. David is pleading for God to rewire his mind and his heart. And what he's saying is this. Mend my heart, God. Mend it like a broken bone. It has the same meaning as all the other metaphors used already for the removal of guilt. But this time it's from the positive perspective of restored joy. Joy, like love, is a, a hallmark characteristic of the Christian faith. And we always say this, joy is not what, what's happening. It's just a sense of God's pleased with me. Let me tell you something. If you're looking for anything more in your life, if you're looking for happiness in anything or in another human being, you're going to miss it. Genuine joy comes from being right with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we have peace with God. And there's just nothing like, we're not running no more. We're not running away from God anymore. David, he's lost it all. He has no restored joy. He needs it back again. He knows what it was. The great intangibles like joy, hope, love, and peace and contentment are always the unforeseen victims of unrepented sin. And that's what we ended with last week. If you're looking at your Christian life and you're like, God, what's going on? Is, you have to, is there unrepented sin? You can't live in sin and have the best of God. You can't do it. And when Christians try to do that, slowly but surely, God dries them up on the inside. And it becomes religion. It becomes church, not relationship anymore. And I'll pick up on that theme at the end of the psalm. So I ask everybody here, where's your joy? Where's your love? Where's your contentment? Where's your peace? What's going on? Do you have that which only God can give? To wake up in the morning and say, praise God, I'm alive and I love you, Lord. My sins are forgiven and whatever comes my way, praise the Lord. Because the most important thing you have, and that's God. He goes on in verse 9 and 10 says this. This is where it starts to turn. I said last week the psalm starts to turn here. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Another cry for cleansing. But he goes on to verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Forgive me. I love a good Pellegrino. <laughs> Praise God. And the big Pellegrino. So in verse 9, we just have another metaphor for, for cleansing. But in verse 10, something really begins now. Create in me a clean heart. you got to remember, David's sitting there. David's crying out. It may be the early morning, maybe the afternoon, maybe evening, maybe for weeks, maybe for months. He's there, and he's just going over and over and over. He's like, he, he forgot. He's lost his way with God. And what he's saying, create in me. And it might not mean anything to you, but the Hebrew word here is the same word used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, God created the heavens and the earth and what the word means is that God created something out of 
David saying, God, I need a miracle. There's nothing I can do. There's no promise I can give you. I can't double step. I can't, I can't pull myself up on my bootstraps. I can't double my efforts, God. There's nothing I can do. I can't even change myself. God, I need a miracle. You have to create something that used to be there, but it's not there no more. I'm dead, God. I'm dead. Do you know before you come to Christ, you are dead spiritually? And the only genuine worship is when a man has been born of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you can offer acceptable praise to God. David's crying out. He's lost it all. This is a man that loved God. Now he has nothing at all and he's crying out. He's appealing theologically to God. And he's saying, God, you created nothing. You created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. I need that same miraculous power now in my life. I have no joy. I have no hope. I have no peace. I have no contentment. All I think about is my sin. All I think about is my guilt. I'm paralyzed. I don't move. I'm an emotional wreck, God. I'm dead on the inside. Create in me, oh God. And I'm sure there's a lot of sobbing going on. All true remorse over these times. You've got those times by yourself and you're like, oh God, how could I have done it? I know better, God. I know better. I'm dead, God. I have no more affections for you like I did when I was a child. When I was a child, I had this innocent faith. I'd go against a 10-foot giant with a spear in his hand, and I would go at him with a slingshot, God, if I could. I was so filled with love for you, I would have done anything. David could not take down Goliath's sister at this point if he wanted to. He has no strength at all. Listen to verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Only a genuine Christian could ever say that. A genuine believer could only say, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. The thought of God taking the witness of the Spirit, the Abba Father cry from us, is too much for any believer to bear. It's times like this when David realized how good he once had it. You know when the grass looks greener on the other side and you go for it and it's not greener you sort of want to get back to the other side again but it's not easy anymore because once you touch forbidden fruit something happens man he's saying do not take your Holy Spirit away from me you have to understand something all David's success was to do with God's anointing of the Holy Spirit on his life Anointing always comes with power, wisdom for ministry, and a very close sense of God's favorable presence. 
take away God's presence and there is no good news. Take away God's presence in the Old Testament, there is no anointing to be a king. Everything David was used to succeed before this tragedy was because of God's presence in his life. So when David says, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me, he's not saying, God, don't take my salvation. He's not saying that. He's saying, God, don't take my usability away. Don't take my ministry away. I want to be used by you, God. I'm, I'm anointed to be the king. I know nothing but being a king. If you take it away from me, I'll be a shadow. I'll be a shell of a human being. Paul says something very similar. When he says he used to beat his body and make it a slave, so after he preached to others, he would not be disqualified from leading God's people. And that's what David's saying here. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Don't take the kingship away from me. God, I, I, I love being your king. I, don't take it away from me, oh God. Take away God's presence and there is no good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the very given of God's joyous presence in our heart. When you get saved, when someone's generally saved, the first thing you have is this overwhelming sense of joy. And the grass is greener, the sun is brighter, the sky is bluer. You got a silly grin on your face. I remember my wife had that. I'm like, what is up with this chick, man? I've known her since 12 years old. She goes to the church with she goes to the crazy church with her crazy sister Kim. <laughs> the next thing you know, I open up my door and there's like 30 people in my apartment because Kimmy had a baptism and they're all partying in my house. I'm like, you. You understand, right? But when you're saved, you know this sense of joy and mercy and forgiveness, and it's overwhelming. And the last thing you would ever want to do is not have that. It is incredible. It's, it's the joy of our salvation. David's going to ask for it again later on. As I said, has anyone sung praises to God this week? Did anybody have a joyful time with music this week with the Lord? Yes. Has anybody enjoyed their Bible this week? Has anybody enjoyed fellowship with another Christian this week? How about hope? Did anybody enjoy a little hope this week? How about peace in the storm? You got a storm going on in your life? Was there peace there? A little. Kimmy has a little. <laughs> Praise God. You see, that's God's promise of his presence. You didn't muscle that up. If you're reading the Bible, you're holding on to a promise and it fills your heart. That's because God's presence is there. And that presence is, when you're in the presence of God, no one feels like a 60-year-old or a 90-year-old. Let me tell you something right now. Make no difference how old you are. When you're in the presence of God, you feel like a child in the arms of a loving, mighty father. You feel safe and you feel secure. You feel affirmed. You feel like you can do anything. Anything through Christ who strengthens you when you sense the favorable presence of God on your life. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It is not just of the mind, it's of the experience. When the Holy Spirit comes in and he applies truth to our soul, you get overwhelmed at times. Amen. <clears throat> 
He says this in verse 12. Remember, there's a trajectory. The first seven verses, he goes down deep into his ugly heart. Now there's a trajectory upward to be renewed for a clean heart, for a willing spirit, for the joy of his salvation. He's looking up now, and he goes here in verse 12. Restore me to the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David longs for the days when God's commands were his joy. There was a time in his life he loved to obey God. Salvation here is not what you and I understand as eternal life. But it's the sure knowledge of God's deliverance from all his enemies. Understand something. This is the day day salvation that a soldier, David was a soldier. True to what a, a genuine soldier is. He was a king. He was a commander-in-chief, he was a general, he was a foot soldier, he was on the front lines, and he knew what it is to be able to say, a thousand could fall on my left, and ten thousand could fall on my right, but no harm shall come to me, O God. I'm your anointed king, God. I can go out into battle because your salvation is always here. David's not talking about eternal life. He's talking about his daily life of being a soldier for God. And how God delivered him from every battle. And he did. But here's the thing. David was not a warrior king anymore. Fear was now in David's heart. I said if Goliath was around, David was empty for battle. He goes on to say this, I need a willing spirit. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David's will to obey was shot. Sin always opens up the door for more willful sins. Sin begets. Once you start tasting this forbidden fruit and you think you can just disobey God, it can turn into an addiction. And who David was afraid of? Himself. He did the unthinkable. Don't forget this. When he says, restore me to a willing spirit, understand something. He did the unthinkable. He took his best friend's wife, raped her. It was not consensual. It was rape. Please don't miss it. And then to cover up his crime, he killed her husband, which was his friend and bodyguard. Don't miss it. This is unthinkable. David's will, he doesn't know if he's coming or going. He can't trust himself anymore. Anyone who's ever struggled with an addiction or anything knows how that is when your will is sold out. And you can't trust yourself anymore. You just... It's a brutal place to be. David can't trust himself. He needs to be renewed. He needs a willing spirit. David is asking for a righteous heart. A heart that one that flees when wickedness and temptation comes. The righteous heart flees. David doesn't know if he saw another naked woman walking around. Maybe he'll do it again. He doesn't trust himself. Restore me. 
Renew in me a willing spirit like I used to have when I was a young man. Like in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. It was David that penned these words. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. David wrote that. He's not the same David anymore. David could not write Psalm 1. As a matter of fact, David wasn't even allowed at this point to expound on Psalm 1. He's broken it all. He's disqualified. But he knows he needs for God create out of nothing a miracle of a new heart and sustain him with a willing spirit as he had when he penned Psalm 1 as he had when he went up against Goliath as he had when he went up all against the mighty nations and now when he came against the toughest fight and that was the lust in his heart for a woman he failed it he can't trust himself no more he's become so willful he has deliberately scorned God's word and he's burnt himself understand something Satan loves to tempt with a little. It reminds me of uh, Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> you know, throw out a little breadcrumbs, you know, and then you're close and you whack them. That's what Satan does. And then you wake up one day and he's like, you know, how do I get back home? Yeah. Temptation's over. I used to be able to walk right by temptation and all of a sudden you can't do it no more because you've tasted forbidden fruit. You've opened up yourself to things. Christians do it all the time. You could be Christians here right now. You say, how in the world did I start doing this again? Why did I go backwards again? What's going on in my life? What happened? Renew me, God, with a willing spirit. I remember when I was a young Christian, what I did for you, I loved you. Are you here today? Does that speak to your heart? David lost the moral high ground. And that is a bad place for a king to be. It's a bad place for a pastor to be. It's a bad place for a father to be. It's a bad place for a husband to be. You girls who want a husband, you make sure he's a righteous man. You make sure that he loves God first, because if he does, he will love you with all his heart also. That's right. Amen. The husband, the man of the house is supposed to be a tower of righteousness. To hold the moral high ground against every temptation of the culture that tries to come in. I'm telling you right now, men are delinquent of their duty. They are. Men have to shepherd their children. It is not mommy's job alone. It is the job of a husband. It is the job of the father to teach the children the right way. Satan can't come against a righteous husband or a righteous father who takes their young child, their daughter, and teaches them the right way. There is need for to be continued self-examination without any kind of paranoia. We need to have sober judgments about ourselves. I ask everybody, where are you? 
on the moral high ground. Where are you? Thirteen to sixteen. Listen how the tone changes now. So the psalm is broken up into really four stanzas, maybe three, depends on how you read it. There's one to seven, there's eight to twelve. We just expounded on that where he wanted to rejoice. But now he's going to promises of what he will do when God draws close to him again. He says this, then I will teach transgressors your way. Why then? He doesn't have a right to teach a transgressor his ways now. He's lost that right. The whole, the whole nation knows. Now David's going to come out and expound on some moral principle. They're going to be like, you've got to be kidding me. Then I will teach. When I'm restored to you, God. When I have the joy of my salvation. When you give me a new heart. When you give me a willing spirit again, God. When I have the moral high ground back. Then I'll go back to teaching transgressors your way. The worst thing you want is someone who doesn't live the life telling you how to live. Jesus said that. Do what the Pharisees tell you, but don't do what they do. Because they don't practice. Jesus said that. David knows that. To preach and to teach and to lead in the pulpit or in your own home, you have to have the moral high ground. No one's going to obey you. I was training someone in their house for years. Oh, how upset he got when he saw his teenage daughter smoking cigarettes. He had a cigarette in his mouth even while we were working out. <laughs> Coffee, cigarette, a couple of push-ups. But that's what's going on over here. David has lost the privilege and he wants it back. Listen to verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will praise aloud your righteousness. Remember something. David has a constant image of his best friend and bodyguard, Uriah, being killed at the hands of God's enemies under his command. He murdered this man. And now the smoke has settled, the dust has cleared. God has forgiven him his sin. He's coming to his senses. And he's like, the thought that he killed Uriah at the hands of the enemy of God. You have to ponder that for a long time and be a Christian for many years before you can grasp how bad that is. I mean, that's really bad. The constant image of Uriah being murdered at the hands of God's enemy was just too much for David. This is the screaming guilt that needed to be blotted out. It's hard to sing from the heart. It's hard to worship. It's hard to preach when you've got blood on your hands. But when mercy is sought... And mercy is found, then a robust joy fills the soul again, and the mouth overflows with thanksgiving and praise and a witness to other people. Those who are forgiven much, 
Say it. Those who are forgiven much. Love much. That's my next sermon, so get ready. Right now you're hiding under David's sin. Wait till we come after you and me. That's my next sermon. But listen to verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will delight, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give you a sacrifice. The sacrifice is a God or a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise that. That's what David's been doing for 16 verses. He's pouring out his broken spirit. He's pouring out his contrite heart. He's pouring himself out to God. He knows he needs God to forgive him. He knows he needs God to wash him. He knows he needs God to give him a new heart. He knows he needs God to give him a willing spirit again. He needs a whole makeover once again. There's people sitting here, you need a makeover, you don't know it. You might have not killed anybody. And you might have not fallen to atrocities of sexual sin. But if you take a little sin over a long period of time, it'll suck the joy right out of your heart. You won't feel God anymore. God won't allow it. He goes on to say, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Why do you think he has to build up the walls of Jerusalem? David's not doing his job for over a year. David's not the leader he's supposed to be. If you smite the shepherd, what happens? Come on. The sheep scatter. David's a mess. Guess who else is a mess? Jerusalem. These closing verses go to show us David was not alone. Israel as a nation had nothing on David. They were worse. Israel was one of the most unspiritual nations ever used by God. They were the worst offenders. So bad that when Jesus came, he says, Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Galilee. Woe to you. For if the miracles that were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But as it is this day, they will rise up and judge you on the day of judgment. David knew something that's... I'll let Paul interpret what David just said. And we'll start closing now. 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 6, 15 and 16. Listen to Paul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. David's saying the same thing. God, put me out there. I'll tell the whole nation how merciful you are. I'll tell the whole nation that's trying to hide like I hid, that they can come to you and receive mercy and receive grace. Understand something about guilt and shame. Guilt and shame doesn't run to God. Guilt and shame runs away from God. And it's our job that God has saved us to tell people God loves them and God's wild about them and God's radical for them and God wants to share his love 
love and joy with them and forgive them. That's our job. What a testimony. When they saw King David restored, what that would do spiritually to the the nation of Israel, just like Paul. That's why Paul was beat half to death and never raised a voice. Because he knows he didn't deserve it. But God gave it to him. He says, I was the foremost, the worst of all sinners Paul thought of himself. When you understand, and I'll preach this the next time. When you understand and have a grown awareness of how much Jesus has done for us, you will be, you won't be able to shut up. I don't shut up. I'm going to share my faith with everybody wherever I can as, as best I can. Why I know what Christ has did for me. I know what I used to be. I know what I'm capable of and how God holds us together. Amen? Amen. Let's go into some applications and we'll close. As I said last week, all Christians will to some degree experience something of David's remorse over sin. Might not be exact. But the remedy is always the same. We need God to do something wonderful on the inside. Please do not try to change yourself. You need God. Personal reflection will always lead to a deeper gratitude. If you're the Christian that comes in and you're worried about this one, you're worried about that one, you're worried about this one. Oh, am I, someone should have heard that sermon. Oh, Pastor, that was, my friend should have heard that sermon. I'm like, no, you need the sermon. <laughs> You need it. I'll ask you this. Is there gratitude in your heart right now for Christ? Be careful. Do you have gratitude all the time? The more you reflect, the more gratitude you will have. Think about where you were when you were 15, where you were when you were 20, where you were when you were 30, where you were when God saved us. I ask this again as I asked last week. The unforeseen victims of our sin is hope, joy, peace, contentment. When sin is up and going, there's there's an emptiness on the inside. God won't share his glory and his joy and his peace while we're trying to live in the world. You won't have it. Telling others, this is the last one. Telling others of God's salvation is always a sure sign that someone is genuinely grateful for God's salvation. Let's close our eyes. Father, we bless you. We love you. Teach us, God. Continue to teach us. Teach us how well you love us and what you've done for us, God. God, and keep us away from sins, God. Help us, Father God, to make a covenant with our eyes, to keep control over our mind, Father God, to, to, to make sure that we're part of the Christian church, Lord God. We're always being washed by the water of the word, Father. Help us, oh God. And if there's anyone here, Father God, that has lost their way and, and they need a fresh touch from you, God, I pray, God, that you start speaking to their hearts. Let them reflect. Let them know that your arms are wide open for them, just like they were for David, just like they were for us, just like they were for the Apostle Paul, God. That there's no sin so severe that God will not forgive. Again, there are no set of circumstances, no life lived in sin that God will not forgive to the person that seeks his mercy. In Jesus' name.